And it's always a great pleasure to talk both about a subject I'm interested in and to talk to alumni of this university. And I'm going to talk for about 45 minutes and then leave plenty of time for questions because in my experience, Oxford alumni always have a lot of questions. And so I'm looking forward to that. A hundred years ago today, people in Europe were beginning to realize that what they had thought would be a short war, what they had hoped would be a decisive war, was probably not going to be that. The early battles of the war in those first six and seven weeks had been costly beyond what people had imagined they could be. The losses had been horrific, and it was becoming clear by the end of September 1914 that there was going to be no decisive victory this year and that they would probably have to get into winter quarters and then resume fighting the following spring. What very few people suspected in September 1914 was that it wasn't going to be just the spring of 1915, but it was going to be the spring of 1916, 1917, and 1918. That it was going to be a war of over five years, four years, which was going to leave a very different Europe and a very different world. That war, I think, continues to haunt us. We continue to try and assess its consequences for the world. We continue, all of us, to live in a world which has been shaped by what happened 100 years ago. The war haunts us because it costs so much and it seemed to leave such destruction and so little clear settlement behind us, behind it. Some 8 million or more men died fighting that war and a great many civilians died as well. It was not like the Second World War where civilians were as much at risk of dying as the soldiers who were actually fighting. It tended to be the fighting men who took the heaviest losses, but civilians did die, either directly as a result of enemy action or as a result of starvation or disease, which were encouraged by the war. A great many more people died at the end of the war of, of the great influenza epidemic, which may well have been spread by the war itself. It's suspected that the movement of soldiers around the world helped to spread the disease to all corners of the world, and that influenza epidemic was one that struck in particular the young. It's been estimated, again, these are only estimates, that some 50 million people died of influenza in the last stages of the war and in the early stages of the peace. We know, too, that those who survived the war were in many cases left scarred for life, either physically or psychologically. And just to mention, there are some seats down at the front if people don't want to sit on the stairs or um, there's some quite comfy chairs right at the front. Um, don't worry, I will not be asking you questions. <laughs> It also was a war which caused tremendous political, social, and economic upheavals. Four empires fell to pieces, and in many cases their governments were changed forever as a result of the war. The Russian Empire had a revolution in 1917. It might well have had great political changes, but I think it's fair to say that without the war, it would have not had that particular revolution. It would have not had the Bolsheviks taking over. It was the war that gave the Bolsheviks, who were a tiny fringe group in 1914 gave the Bolsheviks their chance. And as Russia went through revolution and civil war, of course, it also lost part of what had been a very large empire. And a number of states on the periphery of Russia declared their independence, in some cases successfully, such as the Baltic states, in some cases not so successfully, such as the Caucasian states or Ukraine. The Ottoman Empire fell to pieces in the aftermath of the First World War with, of course, consequences 
for the Middle East and for the stability of the Middle East, which we are still seeing the effects of today. Germany had been an empire. Part of Germany was the Polish territories, and Germany now lost those. Austria-Hungary, that vast empire at the center of Europe, had, for better or worse, maintained a sort of stability and a sort of peace at the heart of Europe for centuries. And what was to succeed it was not going to be peaceful or stable. It was going to be a series of ethnically-based states, and that in turn was going to lead to repeated trouble at the heart of Europe. In addition to the disappearance or the changes of those great empires, the surviving European empires were seriously weakened. Britain, France, Belgium, Portugal all had worldwide empires, and I think it's fair to say that the First World War speeded up the disintegration of those empires. Many of those soldiers, whether the million from India who came to fight in the Middle East and in Europe, or the French soldiers from North Africa, or British soldiers from further south in Africa who came to fight in the wars of the Europeans, no longer had the same confidence in the, right, the rightfulness or the authority of the Europeans to rule over them. And many of those soldiers who went back to their own countries became leaders in nationalist movements. Now, the great European empires were probably going to disappear at some point anyway, but the First World War certainly speeded it up. The First World War also speeded up dramatic political and social change. The spread of Bolshevism, the spread of revolutionary socialism, I think is very much a consequence of that war. And of course, what the war also did was speed up the rise of certain powers. The United States was already on its way to becoming a major economic power, but what the First World War did was help to turn it into a major military and political power worldwide. Japan grew in power as a result of the First World War and became a major Asian player. It already was before the First World War, but the First World War made Japan even more important. And so the consequences of the war are huge, I think, and in some ways have shaped the world in which we live. The war, I think, also haunts us because we still don't know how it started. And that is frightening. If we don't know how a conflict on that scale and with those sorts of consequences and with those sorts of costs started, then I think we have a very reasonable fear that we might do something equally catastrophic again and equally foolish again. It's been estimated that in English there are some 30,000 works on the origins of the First World War. Um, I cannot confess that I read every single one when I was doing my book, but I think it gives you an indication of just how the debate goes on and on and on. And you've all probably had the experience of going into a library or a bookstore and looking for the shelves which have the origins of the First World War, and they will be very long with a great many books which date back almost to the beginning of the war itself, and then look at the origins of the Second World War, and those shelves and that number of books will be very much less. We have really a consensus on how the Second World War started. I think we never will have a consensus on how the First World War started. Almost as soon as the war broke out, European governments began selectively releasing white papers, yellow papers, blue papers. Each country had a different color of their own documents, carefully chosen to show that they were the innocent party and that they had simply been responding to threats and offensives from the other side. And that debate, which started really at the end of 1914, has, as I say, gone on ever since. And we go round and round. The end of the war, the Allied powers blamed Germany and, to a lesser extent, Austria-Hungary for starting the war. We then moved away from that in the 1920s and 30s to take more the Lloyd George view that Europe somehow slithered over the edge into the war without really thinking about what was happening. 
Um, for much of the 1920s and 1930s, we took the view collectively that the First World War was nobody's fault or everybody's fault. And that, of course, played a very important part in the politics of the 1920s and 1930s because it became part of the argument for appeasement, that if the war wasn't Germany's fault, then it was not legitimate that Germany should in any way pay any penalty. Then, of course, the circle turned again, and we got Fritz Fischer and his school of historians in Germany itself at the end of the 1950s, looking into the archives and saying, in fact, Germany did start the war, Germany wanted the war, Germany was prepared to take the risk of a general war. And so the argument has gone on ever since. The most recent historiography have blamed variously Germany, Austria-Hungary, Serbia for being a reckless state which was prepared to use terrorism to achieve its aims, and blaming Russia for having acted recklessly in responding to Austria-Hungary and for threatening its neighbours, and blaming France for being bent on revenge. About the only country so far that hasn't been blamed for the First World War is my own country, Canada. (laughs) And I'm working on that one. I thought it would make an interesting addition to the historiography. Um, It's also, we've searched for explanations based on not just nations, but individuals. Was it the fault of Kaiser Wilhelm II, who was determined to build a navy, which had long-term consequences driving Britain, which felt threatened by a German navy, closer to France and Russia? Or was it the fault of the German generals, who planned a war on two fronts? Was it the fault of Tsar Nicholas? As you can see, these debates simply go on and on. We also have the sorts of explanations that look at the impersonal forces. Was it the forces of economic rivalry? Um, Intense economic rivalry, for example, between Britain and Germany. But then we have to remember that they were also each other's greatest trading partners. And so they were both rivals and partners. Which was the most important? Well, you could conclude that it was the economic rivalry. Imperial rivalry. Um, Imperialism, the scramble for colonies, the attempts to get the remaining so-called unclaimed parts of the world, very nearly led to a major European war. But interestingly enough, the wars that it very nearly led to were between Russia and Britain or Britain and France. Um, On two occasions, Russia and France or Russia, uh, Britain and France or Britain and Russia came very, very close to war, which might well have triggered a war. And there were imperial rivalries in the Ottoman Empire as it appeared to be declining, appeared to be condemned to disappear from the map of Europe and the map of the Middle East, there were rivalries there to try and pick up the pieces. So perhaps it was imperialism, perhaps it was economic rivalry, perhaps it was forces such as nationalism. And I will say something about that because I do think nationalism played a part. But I think we still don't, as I say, have any clear consensus. And there is another explanation which is perhaps the most unsettling of all, and that the war was the result simply of an accident. That, for example, if the Archduke's chauffeur in Sarajevo on June the 28th had not taken the wrong turning, the Archduke would not have been assassinated. If he'd not been assassinated, things might have turned out very differently. So I'll look at those last five weeks when Europe did finally go over the edge. But let me say something about the Europe of 1914. And before I look at the factors which I think were pushing towards war, what I want to do is just have us all remember that a great many people in Europe didn't want war And in fact, a great many people in Europe were working very actively for peace. And it wasn't just in Europe, it was across the Atlantic, it was in countries such as Australia. Um, People such as Gandhi were talking about non-violent ways of trying to settle disputes, both among groups and individuals in society, but also among nations. And I think because the war broke out, we tend to forget just how strong a will there was for peace in Europe. There was a very large middle-class peace movement, which 
was really truly international, made up often of church groups. A number of the churches came together to try and talk about ways of maintaining peace in the world. International organizations of jurists, international organizations of liberal members of parliament, international NGOs. There really was, I think, you can see in the period before 1914, a burgeoning of a number of international organizations of various sorts devoted to the cause of peace. And these were on the whole very well financed, um, both by the churches but also by individuals. Andrew Carnegie, the Scottish-American billionaire, gave a very considerable part of his fortune to the cause of peace. And we still have a Carnegie Institute for Peace and we still have a Carnegie Peace Council. And if you ever go to The Hague, you will see an enormous building called the Peace Palace, which was financed by Andrew Carnegie, which houses, among other things, the Permanent Court of Arbitration. There was tremendous support for non-violent ways of settling disputes. If, if anyone's coming in late, there are some seats down sort of at the front. Um, non-violent ways of settling disputes. There was tremendous interest, for example, in arbitration, whereby powers would decide it had to be voluntary to submit disputes whether over borders or whether over um, an incident, perhaps where one had lost a ship or, or there'd been someone killed, they would decide to submit their disputes to an independent third party and agree to be bound by the decision. Some 300 arbitrations were held of this sort between nations in the years between 1794 and 1914. More than half of those 300 were held after 1890. And so you could see, and people at the time thought they could see a real trend developing in international relations, that nations were moving beyond armed force and the threat of armed force to settle their disputes. In addition to what was largely a middle-class peace movement, there was also very large peace movement among the working classes and the left wing in the world. And Europe's and the world's socialist and, and labor parties were organized into the Second International which met usually at three-year intervals um, in international congresses and which talked at each congress of ways of avoiding a war. And the argument made by the socialists, by the left wing, was that any war fought would not benefit the working classes, would only benefit those who made the arms, would only benefit the ruling elites. And there was talk about how the working classes might prevent a war. And many of them accepted the view of Karl Marx that the working class has no nationality, that their interests are truly international and they should be working together. And so they talked about ways in which they might try and prevent a war or try and stop a war if it looked like being on the verge of breaking out. And one proposal, which was put very forcibly by the French socialists and which had a certain amount of support among the British but not, alas, among the Germans, was to call a general strike. If a general war looked like breaking out, all of Europeans' unions... Socialist parties should call a general strike. And what that would have meant, if they'd been able to do it, is that a war would not have been possible because Europeans were planning for wars involving very large armies, using, using their conscripts and using the reserves. And so, with the exception of Britain, every single European army depended on calling back to the colours those men who were in the reserves. That's what made those huge armies possible as the war broke out in 1914. If there had been a general strike, working-class soldiers would not have come back to the colors when called. And the French military were actually so worried about this that they estimated that some 20% of their reserves would not turn up. In fact, when the day came, less than 0.5% failed to turn up. But this was not something that people knew until 1914. And the fear was, among Europe's military planners and Europe's leaders, they couldn't count 
on their working classes. What's more, if a general strike had been called, not only would the armies not have been able to fill up their ranks, the factories that produced the war material wouldn't have worked, the railways that took the soldiers to the frontiers wouldn't have worked, the ships that carried the supplies across the channel, for example, wouldn't have worked, the coal mines would not have produced the coal that was needed to fuel the whole gigantic enterprise. And so there was very real talk about, about ways in which war could be moderated, limited. Two big peace congresses were held at The Hague at the end of the 1890s and then again in 1907. And there, in fact, was meant to be a third one in the summer of 1915. But for obvious reasons, that wasn't held. And then there were very concrete measures discussed about how to stop a war if it looked like it was about to break out. And this was certainly something, the prospect of a peace movement, whether middle class or working class, preventing war was something that Europe's military planners and Europe's ruling elites took very seriously indeed. But beyond those who worked actively for peace, and they worked in, in various ways, there were peace ballots, peace marches, I mean, this, this was really a very deeply rooted popular cause. Beyond that general sort of active activity towards peace, there, were also, there was also a much more general understanding among very large parts of European society, or at least a belief, that war was something Europe no longer did. Europe was very conscious, and Europeans were very conscious, of just how much progress they had made since 1815, when the Napoleonic Wars finally came to an end. They were very conscious of the tremendous amount of prosperity which had spread through Europe. Now, certainly wasn't equally divided up, and there were still great pockets of poverty, but Europe on the whole was much more prosperous than it had been in 1815, and Europeans were living longer, living better, enjoying more leisure time, enjoying access to foods and consumer goods, which would have been unthinkable for most Europeans to have access to in 1815. More than that, I think, Europeans had, had many of them come to the conclusion that they had somehow advanced in civilization. And there was a lot of talk about how Europe was now more civilized, and Europeans themselves were a different people than their ancestors even of 100 years ago. And so with this civilized people, with this people so conscious of its own progress and its own prosperity, war increasingly came to be seen as something that other people did. Europeans increasingly assumed that war was not something they did. It was something that people might do in Africa, might do in Asia, might do in Latin America, but surely Europeans had moved beyond that. I don't know how many of you have read Stefan Zweig's memoirs, um, the, 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 the World of Yesteryear, it's called in English. It's the last book he wrote in 1941 in which he talks about his childhood in Vienna before the First World War. And he said, we just assumed everything would go on. We assumed Europe would go on being more prosperous, would go on having progress, go on being peaceful. And we assumed that the Austro-Hungarian Empire would go on indefinitely. It had already lasted for a 1,000 years. We thought it would last for another 1,000 years. He called his childhood, or the time of his childhood, the golden age of security. Um, it was the security which, of course, he lived to see shattered. And when he finished his memoir, he and his young wife committed suicide. He didn't want to go on living in the world, which he now saw around him in 1941. But that was not how people felt in 1914. In 1914, people, I think, really, a lot of them in Europe, thought was war was something they just didn't do anymore. The Carnegie Endowment for Peace actually did a report on the Balkan Wars. There had been two very nasty wars in 1912 and 1913. And its report came out in July 1914, just as the First World War was about to start. And there's a wonderful passage just at the end which said, says something to the effect that in the Balkan Wars, dreadful atrocities were committed, and civilians were attacked. But that, of course, is only to be expected of a people who aren't yet civilized. It is improbable. They not, it's not improbable. They said it would not happen further north in Europe. And, of course, it was about to happen. And 
atrocities on a scale which I think few people could have imagined were about to happen. But I think it's very important to remember just how Europeans saw themselves. They did look back at the century before 1914, and they were also conscious that Europe hadn't had many wars. And the century between 1814 and 1914 was, in European terms, a very peaceful century. Now, there had been wars. There was the Crimean War, but that, it could be argued, was really fought on the periphery of Europe, um, involving the Ottoman Empire, and therefore not really a, a, a war in the heartland of Europe. The other wars that Europe had seen had been between two antagonists, not between a whole multitude, and had been decisive. Now, you may not approve of those wars, but what Europeans saw was war, wars that were short, which were decisive, um, the wars of German unification and the wars of Italian unification, none of them lasted for more than about six weeks each, and they left a clear decision. And so whether they were living in a fool's paradise or not, many of them felt in 1914 that they didn't need to fear general war, that it was improbable, if not um, absolutely impossible. Having said that, we now then need to look at some of the other things that were, 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 were moving Europe. I mean, I think there was a good deal of support for peace and a good deal of assumption about peace. But there was also unease. It was not an entirely easy continent. It could not be expected to be. It was very large um, in different stages of developments. There were social strains within Europe. Many countries had real domestic problems, partly as a result of the very progress and prosperity which Europe had enjoyed. Um, great progress does not always rest easily on societies. It can sometimes leave very real strains. And there were concerns, not unlike the ones we have today, that the gap between the rich and the poor was growing too much, that the middle classes might be squeezed, that there were real social problems which weren't being properly dealt with. There were also fears among the ruling elites that they couldn't trust their middle classes and their lower classes. Would they fight for the country if, if needed? Um, were they reliable? Had they become somehow too soft? Real fears in this period of degeneracy. In fact, a very popular book was written by a doctor from Budapest with that title, and it went through many editions and into many languages and argued, and others picked up the argument, that people in Europe were almost living too well and living too long and that um, the failure, or not the failure, but the, but the very success of modern medicine meant that people were living who perhaps shouldn't have. And there was a great deal of worry about somehow the human species degenerating. And I think it's not by co coincidence that in this period you get the first interest in eugenics, the idea that somehow the human species or separate subsections of the human species can be bred and should be bred and the unfit should be winnowed out. Um, the first International Eugenics Congress was held in the Royal Albert Hall in 1912 and its patrons included Winston Churchill, the president of Harvard University and Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor. So this wasn't just a fringe idea. There were, there were concerns that somehow all was not well in Europe. And so what you did get at least in certain quarters, was an increasing propensity to think of war as a solution of, of sorts, that war would help to weed out the unfit, that war would help to stimulate people um, to think in, in more self, terms of self-sacrifice, um, that war would make people better citizens somehow, that war would also help to overcome the social divisions within countries, that if you could have a good war, it would bring people together. This is something we still see today occasionally. Um, if you're having trouble at home, as Putin might be, you look for an external enemy as a way of, of rallying people around a particular cause. Um, you often got men, if, you, if I may say so, who were themselves safely beyond military age, 
saying what we need is a good healthy bloodletting in society every so often. So it's a tonic, it perks things up. And there's a very famous professor, actually, of war history here at Oxford um, who wrote some absolutely blood-curdling things about how what we need um, is a healthy bit of sacrifice every so often to keep the race pure and keep um, people truly patriotic and truly dedicated to the nation. And so the unease in Europe, I think, did in some cases lead to a willingness to contemplate war in almost as a way out, a way of solving or papering over problems. But having said that, there were also very active forces for war. It wasn't just that Europeans in some circles were psychologically prepared to accept the prospect of a general war or even welcome it, but there were, as there were forces for peace, there were also forces for war. And in a way, Europe was a continent in balance between these different sorts of forces. One thing I think that was very important were the rivalries, um, fears that nations had of each other, of being done down by each other. Um, the British feared a number of things in the late 19th century as they began to realize that they were isolated, which is something they had chosen, but the isolation could, in fact, be rather dangerous. I mean, a real wake-up call for Britain was the South African War of 1899-1902 when it became quite clear that virtually everyone else in the world was actually delighted that the two small South African republics were holding the British off and that the British were taking tremendous losses. And it was borne in on the British just how isolated they'd become. Um, they liked to talk about it as splendid isolation, but increasingly it was becoming to be seen as a rather dangerous way to be in the world. And I think you get this reflected in the popular literature in Britain. Um, there's a great passion almost for invasion stories. Um, in the 1890s, there are a number of very popular novels written or, or alarmist pamphlets written about how Britain will be invaded. Um, in the 1890s, the enemy they feared invading them was France. Um, one, I'm trying to remember one, I think it's called the Battle of Dorking, in which the French, in a totally unsporting manner, invade on a weekend. <laughs> and the British government, of course, is away doing whatever the British government does on weekends. It's shooting things or it's hunting things or it's sitting at country houses. And with the help of Irish nationalists the French are able to get to London before anyone realizes they're there. The Irish nationalists cut the telegraph lines, and so London is seized by the French. And, and this, I mean, these are fantasies, but I think they reflect an underlying sort of fear. Once Germany began to build its navy, and once Britain began to mend, mend fences with France, the invasion scares switched to Germany, and you begin to get fears. And some of you may have read, and it's still a wonderful read, The Riddle of the Sands by Erskine Childers, which is, which is I think, a reflection of these sorts of fears. There were also rumours that went round. Now, one of my favourite rumours was that the German army had placed 50,000 officers in Britain disguised as waiters in British restaurants. <laughs> I mean, you can almost imagine a Monty Python sketch <laughs> of the Prussian officer coming to tell you to eat your soup immediately. Um, but these, I think, reflected um, an unease. And it wasn't just the British who had such fears. The Germans had fears of British invasions or of invasions from Russia. And, of course, in those days, Germany and Russia had a common border because there was no Poland between them. And so you get alarmist literature in Germany talking about how the British are going to make a sweeping and very quick and, and impromptu or, or um, unannounced un attack on the North Sea coast of Germany or how the Russians might be ready to attack the Baltic coast of Germany or how the Russian hordes, um, often somehow conflated with the Mongols, are suddenly going to sweep in from the east, um, threatening a stable and prosperous Germany. And so it is an uneasy continent as much as a very prosperous and successful one, and I think these fears reflect it. There's also um, increasing fear in, in, in Britain about what German 
economic success is doing to Britain. And although the two countries are each other's greatest trading partners, there really is a fear that Germany is doing a little bit too, too well. It's beginning to cut into British, British, British markets around the world, even into markets in Britain itself. And there's a very popular pamphlet in the 1890s called Made in Germany, in which the writer urges his readers, who he seems to assume are, are largely men, he says to, to his readers, look around your household and what will you see? You'll see your daughters playing with dolls made in Germany. You'll see your sons playing with tin soldiers made in Germany. You'll be sitting alone in the evening because your wife will be out. And what will she be doing? She'll be listening to German music. <laughs> when you ring the bell for the maid to come and bring you your evening cup of tea, she will bring it in a teapot made in Germany. And when you pick up the poker to poke the fire, it will be made in Germany as well. And you've got similar things in Germany, um, that the British are jealous of German success, that the British will not let Germany have its place in the sun. And so greater economic closeness didn't necessarily bring greater friendship. And I think we can see a parallel today with the United States and China. Um, those two countries are tremendously economically independent. It doesn't seem to have made them in interdependent. It doesn't seem to have made them um, any the closer. What you also had f fueling this fear of the other was a growth in nationalism. And this was the, an age of heightened nationalism. Um, in a number of countries, you had very, very strong um, national pride in the country. And people like me helped to fuel it. Um, histories that were being written in Europe and the histories that were being taught in European schools were almost entirely national histories. In other words, little school children weren't learning French history, weren't, weren't learning international history, they weren't learning European history, they weren't learning about the ways in which Europe had a shared civilization or had shared certain developments. What they were learning was about something called the German nation, the French nation, the English nation, or the Italian nation. And these histories were often very partial, both at the public school level, state school level, but right up to universities. And they tended to paint a history of a people that had always existed, which was, of course, completely ahistorical. The great German historian von Treitschke argued that there had always been a German people. He said, if you look back to Roman times, you can see there was always a German people. They were always different from the Romans, different from their neighbors, more vigorous, stronger, braver. Nothing much has changed. Um, the same people have simply survived down through history. I mean, it is, I think, there's no relation to any sort of real history, but it was very, very powerful. You even got it in schools at the level of such things as arithmetic. I've seen a French school textbook which says if it takes one French soldier to defeat five German soldiers, how many French soldiers will it take to defeat 20 German soldiers? <laughs> so you get even this, this, this is, I think, important because it helps to create um, a sense that we are somehow um, both better, nobler, but we're also threatened. What ties into this is the misapplication of Darwinian ideas to human society. Social Darwinism really permeates a lot of the thinking of this period before 1914. I mean, not everyone subscribed to such ideas, but enough people did. And you can see people casually saying things which really are taken straight from Darwinian theory and misapplied to human societies. I've seen the diary of a young British officer, young lieutenant on the Western Front, where he talks about the struggle, and he said it's pretty awful, you know, we're stuck here in the trenches, it's you know, awful, we're taking terrible losses. But then he says that's what life's about, isn't it? Life is a perpetual struggle. And it's this idea taken from Darwin about the struggle, the survival, the struggle for survival, and the survival of the fittest. And as it's applied to human societies, it almost becomes a moral thing that the society that won't struggle doesn't deserve to survive. 
um, that it deserves to disappear. And so struggle and being prepared to fight um, are conflated as a way of showing that this particular sub-bit of the human species, and people seriously believe that there was something you could identify as a French species and a German species and an English species, that that species had to struggle um, if it was to survive, if it did not want to disappear and go the way of the dodo. And these ideas are really quite powerful. And tied in with this, it, it really feeds internationalism. And tied in with this is that just as in the natural world, most species have natural predators, so in human species, most human species have natural enemies. And so you will get German military attaches in Paris saying, what can you do? The French are our natural enemy, always have been. That's just the law of nature. And you'll get French military attaches in Berlin saying exactly the same thing. And you get very learned people writing books which purport to show that their species has always been distinctive and has always been better and the other species is somehow inferior. And so you will get um, this wonderful book which I, which I looked at some time ago, a um, very learned German professor in Berlin, saying the French are and have always been a frivolous, immoral, and idle people. And then he says, and this is, this is the bit I've always loved, he says to his readers, if you want to see examples of their frivolity and immorality in Paris, I can tell you exactly where to go. <laughs> so you get a sort of, you know, a, a, a portrayal of the other in this cartoonish way. But this does have an influence. You get the same thing, of course, in France. There's a whole school of French sociology which argues that the Prussians, and the French tended to pick on the Prussians because they were both the heart of the Germany and they exemplified for the French um, their main enemy. It really was the Prussian army which had defeated France in 1870-71. You get French sociologists writing about the Prussians and saying geography has decreed, has, has meant that they have no sense of morality because they live in a very flat landscape and they have no, no heights and no depths. And so they simply don't understand um, the difference between good and evil. You know, and we look at these things and we think how absolutely absurd, but these are quite powerful at the time. I mean, these are things that people seem to believe in and these are things which help to shape attitudes. And it's tied in also, because so many things are related, it's tied in with the spread of modern communications, the spread of literacy, the spread of mass media. Books are a lot cheaper now, magazines are a lot cheaper by 1914, you have the mass tabloid newspapers. The biggest single daily newspaper in Moscow in 1914 had a circulation of 800,000. And so changes in technology, changes in communication, changes in education um, help to fuel these changes in thinking. Now, not everyone thinks like this, but these are persuasive. Um, these are the ways in which, which a lot of people think. And governments actually find to their dismay, that they're now being limited by something called public opinion or they're being pushed in directions they may not want to go. I mean, not everybody in the German government thought that Germany should try and get colonies. A lot of German states, when felt from Bismarck on down, felt that it was a waste of time and money. But they found themselves being pushed by an increasingly vociferous colonial lobby and a Reichstag where there were a number of parties that were demanding colonies for Germany. Lord Salisbury, the great British conservative prime minister in the 1890s, complained about it. He said, I don't like this new public opinion. He said, it's like having a gigantic lunatic asylum at one's back. <laughs> but there it is, and you have to deal with it. And so I think nationalism and the ideas associated with nationalism, nationalism do not in themselves create the First World War, but they help to create the atmosphere in which a war seems desirable or seems necessary or perhaps seems inevitable. So if we think of Europe, just to go back to my earlier point, as a continent that's very much in play, 
between those who assume peace is the probable state of affairs and those who assume that war is a necessary state of affairs. And then we get, of course, to the summer of 1914, where Europe goes into war. And this is not, I think, a highly conscious decision. This is not something that people sit down and say, we're going to have a war. But it is something that the previous ways of thinking have at least prepared people for, the idea that war might settle things, as previous wars have done, the, the idea that war might get things over with, the, the idea that war might be good for society, might be good for the young. An image that's very c common at this time is of Europe being like a, a landscape or a country on the edge of a thunderstorm. It's a very oppressive, very hot day. You can feel that something's about to happen, and there's almost a willingness to want it to happen. You know, get the thunderstorm over with, the air will be clearer, things will be settled. And so I think the psychological barriers, if people aren't actively wanting war, they're less inclined to oppose it um, by 1914. What is also very dangerous by 1914 is that Europe has been through previous crises. It has been through a series of crises, and they seem to be getting closer and closer together from 1908, 1911, 1912, 1913, um, 1912 and 1913 wars in the Balkans. And what people have concluded are two things. One, that we manage crises, we've had crises before, it's not going to matter this time. And you get that very much in, in the thinking of, of the, those five weeks from June 28th to August the 4th, people saying, it's not going to happen. It's like the crisis last year. It's like the crisis the year before. There'll be some talk of mobilization. There'll be some huffing and puffing. There'll be some diplomatic notes back and forth. And then everyone will back down and we'll go back to normal. And that was dangerous. There's a dangerous complacency by 1914 as a result of the previous history. The other thing that was very dangerous is that those statesmen in certain countries who had been involved in the previous crises had decided that this time they were not going to back down. And so you get in Russia, for example... A number of key figures saying, we backed down before, we didn't defend Serbia before, we've allowed Germany to push us around, we've allowed Austria-Hungary to do it at once, this time we won't do it. This time we will stand up for them because otherwise we won't be a great power any longer. And you get something similar in Germany where the Germans say, look, last time we didn't really back Austria-Hungary, if we don't do it this time we might lose our only serious ally. And so the lessons of the previous crises are, are indeed dangerous, but I think in the end what you get is accident and some very stupid human decisions. If the Archduke had not been assassinated in Sarajevo, and that really was an accident, he almost escaped it. If he hadn't been assassinated, Austria-Hungary would not have had the excuse it needed to try and destroy Serbia, which is what it wanted to do. Furthermore, he would have been there to tell them not to do it. The Archduke on all previous occasions had said we should not go to war. We would be crazy to go to war over Serbia. It will mean our destruction. We do not want to risk a war with Russia. And so I think accident plays a huge part. And then you get the series of decisions, which some of you probably all know, so I won't go through them, but the decision of Austria-Hungary to this time go after Serbia, bring it under control or destroy it. Germany's decision to back Austria-Hungary, Russia's decision to back Serbia. And that then set in motion those military plans which led to the mobilizations and got Europe into a position by the beginning of August, where it was almost impossible to back down. Once the army started mobilizing, once you started getting those men into uniform, once you started moving them towards the frontiers, once you had put that much investment in, it became very difficult to back down. But what I think we need to remember is just how short a time it took, five weeks from the assassination in Sarajevo to the outbreak of a general war with all the consequences that I mentioned at the beginning. So I can't tell you who I think started it, because I don't know, but what I ha can do, I hope, is try and explain how Europe got itself into a frame of mind 
where enough people thought, let's have a war, let's get it over with, uh, let's see what happens. Thank you.